thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. He bumped the trim button. The end of the cat stroke, instead of playing rotating at 8.1 degrees alpha, it dove for the water seeking zero degrees alpha. He immediately went to burn, started pulling back on the stick. He disappeared below the bow. Air boss yelling, eject. He says he got down about 10 feet. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And on this episode, we are repurposing yet another happy hour discussion from Patreon. Now, if you are a regular listener, you already know that happy hour discussions are just Zoom calls that I have with an entertaining guest who has amazing experiences. And this week is no different. It's with Jerry Schubert, call sign Lefty, who used to fly the A-4, the A-7, and the F-A-18 in the Navy. And he's got some really great stories on grit, on naval aviation, and on fatherhood. So enjoy this, and we'll see you again next week. Here we go. Oh, look at you. You got quite the uh, I love me wall back there. This is our bonus room above the garage. My wife let it be an I love me room. Ah, very good. Some people get the garage. You get the room above the garage, hopefully as well. So excellent. Well, welcome to happy hour. Let's see. What did you bring yourself? Did you get anything? A diet Dr. Pepper with a straw. Diet Dr. Pepper with a straw. I have a IBC root beer. Cheers. Cheers. And it's California compatible. It's reusable. All right. Well, hey, it's good to see you and meet you and and chat a little bit here. I wanted to just kind of get some background from you, but let's get to know you. All right. I was born and raised in St. Louis. I've always wanted to fly, built model airplanes. I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy because they taught you to fly and they had, and I was interested in architecture. They had that chapel there. I got a nomination Naval Academy, which is good. And uh, went there. When I graduated, I was an NFO candidate because my eyesight so I went to Destroyer for a year. I actually got lowered in a horse collar onto the fantail of my Destroyer in the Gulf of Tonkin in August of 1972 at 20:00 at night. The XO met me on the fantail and said, welcome board, Ensign, you got the mid-watch. Go store your bags. <laughs> but a year later, I went to flight school. And it's a long story, but I'll cut it short. Passed the eye test, let me be a pilot. I flew A7Bs, made a med cruise from the East Coast from the West Coast Air Wing on the Franklin D. Roosevelt, transitioned to A7Es, where I was in VA-94. All right. Which I think you were in VFA-94, right? Correct. And then I went to uh, VA-127 Lemoore, flew aggressor. As an A7 guy, obviously we didn't have opportunity to go through Top Gun, but as an aggressor, I got to go through the adversary course back in uh, May of 1980. That got me in line to be in the second operational Hornet squadron in 1984. So I ended up making the first cruise in the Hornet on the Constellation, the opposite of VFA-25. That was interesting because every day something happened that we could learn from. 
Was what a, lot jets were they? Do you recall? A lot eights, yeah. Six A or eight? Okay. There are a lot eights. I'm almost sure. Okay. I got to pick one up from the factory. Right where you were born, there in St. Louis, huh? Yeah. Well, my dad worked for McDonnell Douglas too. Oh, okay. So he got to come see me take off. And I don't know if you ever heard of it, but they do something called an Eagle departure out of Lambert Field. Mm-mm. Here you are taking off from an international airport. Eagle departure authorizes you to accelerate as fast as you can to the end of the runway, then do a 90 degree climb to get out of the traffic area. <laughs> so I got to go down the runway in my brand new Hornet, hit the end of the runway about 500 knots, go 90 degrees nose up and roll over my back about 28,000 feet and pick up my clearance. And my dad got to watch the whole thing. I'm sure he was proud. Yeah. (laughs) But I left 25, went to 125's Yapso. While I was there, I got a phone call saying they want me to go down to El Toro to be a stand-up EXO for the VMF AT-101. Uh-huh. They said, in the whole Navy, there are two guys qualified. I'm their number one choice. So I got myself a little bit of a swelled head and (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, I said, well, why am I number one? They said, well, you live in Lemoore. The other guy lives in Cecil. You're cheaper to move. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were going to say because the other guy didn't want to do it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that makes you number one. But either way, uh, with my ego. But two weeks later, I was down in El Toro. And then from there, I screened. I went to VFA 151 on the Midway. I was the XO during Desert Storm. I brought the uh, ship and my squadron came back to the States on a home port change. I flew a flyby for Midway decommissioning, which is another story. Yeah, I'm sure. From there, I went back to Japan because my wife liked Japan. And you were in Japan too, right? Briefly, yes. Well, we ended up doing six years in Japan. And then from there, I retired, went to Delta for 18 years, and now I'm fully retired. (laughs) Here's a hint. I like to travel. I went from being a captain on the 88 back to a first officer on the ER. And for the last four years of my career, I was flying to Europe or South America four times a month, taking my wife at least once a month. And just international was fantastic. Good for you, Lefty. That sounds like quite the life. All right. So I got, I made some notes to myself. I got to go back. You said you were an adversary pilot in Lemoore. I didn't know they had a squadron there. Did you say it was VA-127? What were they flying? TA-4s. And then while I was there, they started off as an instrument squadron. Back in like 1976, one of the guys in the squadron he used to know his name. But he thought, hey, we need to have some adversary people for the A7 guys. And it wasn't so much a dogfight, but teach them to survive, recognize the threat, do a defensive turn, get down on the weeds, whatever. So uh, he sort of just started doing it on their own. And then they uh, petitioned the big wigs of the Navy, whatever, and they actually got a secondary mission as an adversary squadron. So we got to go to, like I said, Top Gun. We got to fly Constant Peg. Yeah, we were a backup to the uh, F-4 and F-14 guys in Miramar. They had a plane go down the chocks. We'd get a phone call from the Constant Peg guys and say, hey, can you be here in 20 minutes? <laughs> You're darn right. <laughs> Whatever was going on, we canceled. And I guess 127 moved up to Fallon and became VFA 127. And, and then went to F-18s, is that right? Yeah, and then, but they went away. And I guess it's worth mentioning uh, for folks who might be listening to this, but nothing else, that Constant Peg was the exploitation of a MiG-21 back in the early 80s out somewhere near Las Vegas. They would fly against you guys for the familiarity of seeing what it's like in real life and justifying the maneuvers that were taught that hopefully they really work. So we had a whole episode on that sometime back. I was fortunate enough to, I hope this is, I know it's been declassified, 
I got to fly against the MiG-17, the MiG-21, and the MiG-23. Well, the 21 and the 23 were both the constant peg. The 17, I wonder if that was part of the donut, or was that the early MiG-21? I don't know. We'll have to look it up later. But So you went through Top Gun while it was still at Miramar. Of course. Yeah, adversary course. So we have some other overlap besides 94. I went through VMFAT 101 for my Cat 1 right out of flight school. I say it's the best year of my life, although my wife doesn't like to hear it because we'd been dating. She went home to get a master's degree. I went to Southern California to learn the F-18 and party like a rock star. So it was a great year, but we ended up getting married, so it worked out. Is that Um, still in El Toro then? or No, so El Toro closed not long after I left there in 96. And I think it closed within a year after that. And VMFAT 101 is now at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, which breaks my heart. Yeah, I knew that, but you <laughs> went to El Toro. Correct. Yeah, sorry. That's, yeah, yes. Well, if you look at the plaque on the wall, my name was the first XO up there. Were you the senior Navy guy or maybe one of the only Navy guys? Because that's the senior Navy guy when I went through was the XO. Yeah, I was a senior Navy guy. We had a joint change of command with a HAMS 31 at the time. So we had three platoons of Marines and one platoon of Navy sailors march in the change of command. <laughs> they named me the commander of troops. So I had to dig out my sword and learn 238 commands for this change of command for everybody to pass in review and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. You should have remembered that from the Naval Academy, right? I was never uh, ranked high enough to carry a sword <laughs> in the Naval Academy. <laughs> Hence this whole business about the destroyer. Okay, I'm, I'm, the picture is oh, coming no, into focus. The year we graduated, what they said was the Naval Academy, cream of the crop. They all go to flight school and they compete against each other. So not everybody may get what they want. So the year I graduated, the next year, they said, we're going to spread you out over a year period. So the Academy guys have a better chance of getting what they want. Because as an NFO candidate, I chose to go for a year, get my OOD call underway, and then if something happened, I didn't make it through flight school, I go back to the surface line, not completely as a newbie, as an OOD. Right. Well, that's why I went for a year. The dropout rate was so high, my company sent 12 guys to flight school, eight DOR'd, four got their wings, two died within uh, four years of graduation. So the other guy left P3s after five years. So out of 12 guys in flight school, I'm the only one that made her career. But uh, we stopped doing that after that because the DOR rate was so high. Oh, my goodness. Lefty, were you at El Toro when the air show, the guy uh, ended up doing a loop into the ground, and apparently, like, every day of practice, he got lower and lower? And I was there. I was with my wife and kids. When he hit the ground, I stood up and said, that expletive just embarrassed us in front of 400,000 people doing something he wasn't supposed to do. He was actually my fighter weapons instructor when I went through the RAG. Really? And he had a reputation for considering himself the best pilot in the Marine Corps. But yes, I was there. I watched it. I actually went to visit him in the hospital later, brought my wife with me. His face hit the stick or in the instrument panel. His face was all beat up. We talked to his wife, and she said that she gave the doctors a picture of him when he was 30 and when he was 50 and said, make him look someplace in between. <laughs> My wife said if she ever has a facelift, she wants those doctors to do it because they did a good job. I had heard, and, and I've never believed this because we wear an oxygen mask, but I heard there was teeth marks in the stick because, like you said, his face came down and slammed into something. I don't know if that was a wives' tale or whatever, but 
How did the airplane not explode? Well, it was late loaded. He's actually coming down tail first, just like hit tail first and pancaked and slid. It slid in the dirt. And uh, I don't think he shut down the engines, though, until after, like, he, I think the, uh, the crash crew ended up shutting down the engines. Wow. That's crazy. Did he fly again? No. Not for the Marine Corps. He ended up retiring. Then he, he got part of a uh, civilian aerobatic show. Oh, good for him. How about the A-4 that got stolen by the sergeant one night? Were you there for that? That was before my time. No, okay. I- that came up on one of our episodes a long time ago. I had to do a little research to answer that one, but... All right, so what did you end up with in the F-18? Like hours and traps and all that. Did you deploy on a carrier or? I know my total. Oh, you, were in, you were on Midway, sorry. Yeah, yeah I missed that part. Well, I deployed in VFA 25 as a department head on the Midway. We flew, I flew in Desert Storm off the Midway. All right, I was micro-napping, apologies. That's all right. <laughs> but I, I'm actually proud of this. I've got over a thousand hours in three generations of airplanes. The A-4, the A-7, the F-18. Wow. A thousand in each, you mean? Well, I got eleven hundred in the A seven. Okay. Thirteen hundred in the A four, and twenty five hundred in the F eighteen. Holy smokes, Lefty! If I would have known this, I would have bagged some extra flight time, but I retired with four thousand nine hundred and fifty hours. Holy cow! Now, I mean, that's all, how's your neck? I guess is what I'm. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> My lower back hurts. I've got spinal stenosis in both places. Oh, really? Wow. At least you had a cushy seat for the second half of your aviation yeah. career. And I'm not going to ask you about those hours because now that I've done it a little bit, I know they don't matter. <laughs> I have no idea how many airline hours I have. Oh, I don't keep a logbook or anything. Yeah. I just figured the airline can take care of that. All right. So let's talk about, again, you had sent me this email and I think it was based on a comment I made on one of my shows about where you put your hand, but that you don't put it on the stick. And I don't know if you caught the episode with Pete Pettigrew way back episode like 16 or something, the real Viper, we called it. He was kind of poking some fun at me about F4 guys having to actually fly the stick because I guess they had to open some sort of bellows or something on the cat shot. But on the F-18, you don't touch it. And you said you had a test pilot friend who knew all about why that was? His name was Ken Grubbs, and he was the uh, carrier suitability test pilot at Pax River in the F-18. What kind of call sign did he have with Grubbs? Grubbo. Grubbo? Okay. (laughs) He was sort of like, uh, who's the guy in the Peanuts comic strip? Big Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Grubbo. (laughs) Hey, Grubbo, if you see this, his military... uh, Uniform was never the sharpest. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I like to say you can't be good at everything. So no, I'm no, sure he was great at other stuff. But anyway. <laughs> he's doing the carrier suitability testing. And one of the things they work on is determining minimum end speed for a cat shot. And the way he explained it was they'd go out and do a cat shot and they'd do all the figures, something they know can get airborne. And then they'd come around and do another cat shot with a little less steam pressure. I can't remember the increment, but they're backing off the end speed by like two to three knots per time. Just to interrupt you, there is video floating around the internet right now of an F-35 going off the cat and sinking like 30 feet towards the water. So I'm guessing similar testing. Probably, yeah. And I get, because we still have steam cats, I'm thinking of the e-malls. So he was doing this and he's getting near the end of the test point. So the point where the end speed was almost at stall speed. Now, again, this is a, an older prom airplane, and for your guys, program will read only memory or flight controls. You know, remember, you had to hit the trim button, then you get a trim advisory on the left EDI, and then 
you'd run your uh, trim to a, a set for the catapult shot, which for us was normally 12 and a half degrees in a clean airplane versus four degrees for a, a normal takeoff. So he'd put his launch bar down, he'd ran his trim, but he, what he said was sometime moving around the cockpit, he must have bumped the trim button unaware of it, all right? Only bumped it. He went off the cat and you know the airplane seeks 8.1 degrees angle attack at weight off wheels. Which is the optimal. And then in about a half a second, I think, well, the gains are like four to one. That's why your hands are off the stick, because right off the cat at weight off wheels, whatever input you give the stick, you're going to give four times the output to the flight control services. And that's to give you a good sharp rotation. So you take your hand off the stick so you don't get in the PIO because you're overcorrecting. Okay. Well, as a test pilot, he didn't have his hand on the towel rack, but what they determined later, he bumped the trim button. At the end of the cat stroke, instead of the plane rotating at 8.1 degrees alpha, it dove for the water, seeking zero degrees alpha. Ooh. And he immediately went to burner. He started pulling back on the stick on the camera that's in the tower. He disappeared below the bow. In the background, you could hear the air boss yelling, eject, eject, eject. Then he saw this water plume sprayed in front of the ship. He says he got down about 10 feet, he thinks. Oh, heavens. But when he they, was a test pilot, though, right? He was a test pilot. Okay. He was doing test stuff. Well, but still, I mean, in other words, he's probably seen some fairly colorful things and is a good pilot, I guess, to yeah. put it briefly. When they analyzed what happened, they determined that momentarily depressing the trim button sends a signal to the flight control computer to seek zero degrees angle attack or to zero out the pitch, you know, on weight off wheels. But there's no signal in the cockpit. And that's where he said, so they put a, you know, how NATOPS is advisory, caution, warning. In those days, I'm pretty sure they put a warning. Momentary actuation of the trim switch after being set for takeoff will cause the airplane to do this. I guess eventually they ended up doing a software fix. But he's the one that recommended putting your hand you know, right behind the stick so that the time it takes to go from the towel rack to the stick could be the difference in that 10 feet of flying it away and hitting the water. Yeah, I, I don't know where the towel thing started from. I know it's useful for trying to turn in the cockpit to see somebody behind you if you're unfortunate enough to let them get behind you in a dogfight. But I started up on the towel rack when I was a brand new pilot at 101 just because that's what we were told to do. But later I realized, what the heck, I'll just put it on my right knee and right off the shot, by the time I get done settling in, I just move it right there and it's a whole lot easier. All right, so he was the one. And then uh, partly, though, right, a lot of the early F-18 guys flew A-7s prior to that, and they had a whole different process. Yeah, I may have mentioned in the email about the A-7 guys who want to look good off the cat with a clearing turn daytime. They would actually go down the cat, either full left or right stick, depending on what clearing they wanted. So right at the end of the cat, as soon as they went right off the wheels, the plane started snapping to the direction. So that's where most of the guys going from the A-7 to the F-18 is like, very hard habit pattern to break. It's actually a guy that was a skipper. He made it through the rag, made it through CQ in the rag, but within his first 10 cat shots in the fleet, he came off the cat, the plane went to the PIO off the cat, he ejected, and uh, the plane leveled out, flew off into the horizon. <laughs> Just fine, without interference. And I won't mention any names, but he swore that his hands weren't on the stick, but most of the community said baloney. That looked exactly like your hands on the stick, you know, with the four to one gains. And How did he do in the mishap board? 
He said, she said, they said, yeah. okay, what can we do? We can't prove it. The yeah. plane is flat on the ocean. So he continued on. Lefty, we had an S3 on my JFK deployment. It was my second deployment as a JO that went down the waste cat as I was turning on to cat one. And later they analyzed and already on the way down, the S3 didn't have ailerons, had spoilers, but they were deflected. And it departed right off the catapult and went into the water and killed two guys. I knew them both. And I watched it. It was awful. But later they decided that RXO did the mishap and interviewed, of course, the ready room. And it turns out they were having a clearing turn contest in a sense. And so this pilot already had the inputs in and did some sort of adverse yaw departure or something along those lines. Because you actually can see when you slow down the plat tape, the jets start to roll and yaw all at once. And all of a sudden the flight controls go the other way. And then that's when it just snaps over because it's already at a spot. And so, yeah, it just, it gives me shivers to hear about the A7 guys trying to do that. And maybe that airplane, well, clearly it was a little different coming off the cat, but that was what unfortunately killed two guys and crashed an S3. I may know the father of the pilot if it's. Yeah, you probably do. It was a real bummer, but it's unforgiving, you know? You know, unlike that quote by that guy back in the 1930s that aviation, like the sea, right, inherently unforgiving of mistakes. I think it also is dangerous. It's just both. <laughs> it's dangerous and it's unforgiving. The habit patterns of the A7 also set us up for a problem the F-18 in the back of the boat, for the early F-18. The A7 guys, again, both on the clearing turn and on this thing called the lieutenant commander dip, I was never a good enough pilot to do either. I... <laughs> <laughs> I pretty much did. my sticks where it's supposed to be until I'm weighed off wheels. But the A7, it wasn't like rock steady like the F4. And uh, Lieutenant Commander Dip was if you're a little bit high and like you're in the middle, so you just do a little quick bunt the nose, power back, one potato, pull the nose back up, power back on, and it'd drop you like a half a ball. If you're a little bit high, boom, you get it. All right, but that's Lieutenant Commander Dip. Well, in the F18, the early proms, the early things, if you gave the input to the stick that was going to command the tail to go eight degrees of deflection, it would start traveling to eight degrees. If you gave it a, the opposite command before it reached the eight degrees, it will continue to the eight degrees and then give you what you commanded. So when you do the Lieutenant Commander dip, that little nose bunt, the tail starts traveling, and then you give it your back stick, well, the tail's still telling it to go down. Then you give it more back stick, and then it catches up, and now the nose starts coming up. So you get yourself out of sync of the airplane. And I actually did get in a situation on my first cruise where I was landing, pulling the stick back, and the nose was coming down as I hit the wires. Oh, geez. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. 
If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. The way they fix that is they change the prom. So if the tail is still moving and the stick moves the other direction, it cancels the first command and gives you the latest one. So mm-hmm. by the time you flew, you probably didn't see that. Well, I, I'd like to be able to blame my poor landing performance in general on, on something, but I don't think it was that. No, for us, if we needed to, you know, like we didn't have DLC like the Tomcat, but I don't know about you, but I felt like if you just kind of shook the stick left and right a little bit, you could scrub a little lift off the wings, but the wings didn't really move that far, it felt like. But I never had any trouble coming down. My problem was staying off the darn one wire at night. I'm not kidding. Were you a uh, LSO lefty? No. No, I wasn't either. But no kidding. I can't tell you how many passes the LSOs would come in. And you remember when they would debrief your pass, there was something at the start, in the middle, in close, and at the ramp. My day passes were all over the place. But at night, literally, all they would say is, not enough power in close, low at the ramp, no grade one. Nothing at the start, nothing at the middle. But for whatever reason, I don't know if I had deck rush or something, but I had always, it got so bad, they called it the Jello one arrival. And that was what you had to do. You had to come down on rails until in close and then under power into the one wire. How about, hey, I mean, it was never like screaming power calls or anything else. It was just, oh, Jello's here. Of course, all those early ready rooms, remember those that are right under the one and two wires? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Big old slam right above their heads because it's only one level below the flight deck. So somehow I broke into the top 10 a couple of times later as a department head, but it took me a while. I was definitely on the short bus. I broke the top 10 one time. (laughs) Well, we didn't see Q in the T2. There wasn't a boat deck available, so just field qual. So now I went to the A4 to see Q, and like I said, I started off as an NFO. My eyesight wasn't that good. So I'm doing night SCLPs. I'm flying a close pattern. I'm lining up the airplane in front of me with the datum lights. I can't see the ball at the start. (laughs) So I did qual on the T-A4, but just not real well. So I didn't have a whole lot of confidence. So I go out to A7B, which has a uh, 12 second idle to mill throttle response. Oh my heavens. You don't want to get behind the power. I'd say. And uh, I, well, let's see, what was the first time I'd bounced in the daytime. We had one more night bounce to go. And I went home to eat dinner before the night bounce. There were a pair of baby booties on the front door. My wife told me she's pregnant. <laughs> I went back that night and they field disqualified me, but they said they'd still take me the boat in the daytime just so I get some experience. So I got nine day traps. The second time I went to the boat, I was supposed to go to the midway. So you need a 12 day and eight night. I got my 12 day and eight night on December 23rd. I was supposed to fly home on the 24th, the 25th fly to Japan and have Christmas in Japan. And I got disqualified the second time. I had to call my wife from Pensacola and tell her to cancel the move. And they said, we'll have a FENAB for you after Christmas. Well, I went into the FENAB after feeling miserable the whole holidays. And the LSO said, I did well enough to go to a squadron going to buildups. I didn't do well enough to go to a squadron already deployed. Well, they gave me a third shot. And uh, third, that was all it took? Well, then I got a new pair of glasses too, which helped. <laughs> By now, I've got 29 traps in the A7. So they said, you're lowest priority. So I walk aboard the ship on Sunday night. 
it's Wednesday night. They say, catch a 6 a.m. helicopter, fly to the beach, get a jet, come out here and get called. He said, we only have one more night to go because the ship's pulling on Friday no matter what. Normally only get four night traps a night, but if you're doing one off, they'll get a waiver to six. So it's six o'clock in the morning, I'm on a helicopter to the beach. I get my trusty A7 to come out and get six day traps. I go back, I eat dinner, come back out, I get my third trap, I come off the cat. They go, your signal, steer 360-22 miles, NES Pensacola. And my heart just hit the floor because I thought I disqualified again. I need three more traps. So I land, maintenance control says that the LSOs want to talk to me up at the Raspberry. The LSOs ask, hey, Lefty, how you feeling? I go, I feel awful, you know, you just sent me to the beach. They said, no, you're doing great. The ship ran out of sea room. Come back out <laughs> a couple hours. So I went from the depths of despair to the heights of elation like that. I went back out, got three more night traps, got back into Pensacola at two o'clock in the morning. So I'm a rag student. It's got 12 traps in one day, the 20 hour day. And this must've been before they cared a lot like they do now about crew rest and all that. In my mind, I was this close to never being an aviator because of my eyes. Mm -hmm. But the LSOs, they liked me, so they let me go three yeah. times. How did you not end up with a call sign Phoenix? I mean, sounds like you've <laughs> risen from the ashes. <laughs> Probably because all the guys in my class, after their second boat, that they were gone. And no one yeah. did. <laughs> <laughs> they were all coming back to be instructors. Yeah. Oh, man. That's hilarious. The A7 had a launch bar, right? Yeah. You did say you called in the uh, A4 as well? Yeah. Okay. Uh, just in the training command. Do you remember the bridle that they used to have to hook up? Yeah. I don't remember a whole lot. I remember pre-flighting the hooks in the front. Yeah. I don't yeah. know why it stands out to me from that day of all the different things. But when I first CQ'd in 1995 in an A4, of course, we'd had the field carrier landing practices. We'd had the lectures and as good as simulators as we could have back then and the deck procedures and the colored jerseys and all those things. Either I didn't catch it or they never told us that when you go into tension, there's gonna be all these people coming out from under your airplane. I just, for whatever reason, remember going to tension on my very first cat and it was like turning on the lights in your kitchen at night and all the cockroaches go scurrying. <laughs> I, I felt like there was people running out from underneath and I guess they were the ones connecting this contraption to shoot you off the front because the A4 didn't have a launch bar. Well. It's amazing the things you remember, though. Oh, for sure. And well, I don't remember, did the bridle go flying into the sea, or did it just stop at the end with the shuttle? You know that extension on the front of the older ships on both cats? Oh, yeah. That's what caught the bridle. That's what that was for, huh? Okay, it was like two That's little fingers bridle, sticking yeah. out. As the hooks released the bridle, it just flopped forward and hit that thing and kept it from going into the water. Now, you don't see those on the waist, but the waist cats stop farther back from the edge. So that's probably why. Well, so now your Midway is a museum, dare I say. But you did the flyby for the decommissioning. Was that here? Because I actually, as a midshipman, was on the destroyer that was chasing the Midway back from Hawaii to come home and decommission. And it went to Seattle first, as I recall. We did. Were you on the ship? That's when tailhook happened. This was in, oh, yeah, I think you're right. This was the summer of 91, yeah. And fortunately, I didn't go to that tailhook because I couldn't afford it. <laughs> uh, that was one time, I guess, being poor helps. Okay, so it went from Hawaii, where it turned over with independence, as I recall, to Seattle, and then down to San Diego. And then we've had a show on the Midway. But I think, did it decommission down here and then went back up? Or what happened? I don't remember. It got towed at some place. 
I can't remember if it was up to Bremerton. Or Everett, one of those. And then they towed it back to San Diego. Once it was ready as a museum. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it was decommissioned in San Diego at North Island in like May of 92. I'm up in Lemoore and my squadron, VFA-151, had been on the Midway the entire time I was in Japan. When they announced the retirement ceremony, I called down to AirPAC, ComNav AirPAC, said, look, my squadron's on that ship for 18 years in Japan. There's no squadron in the United States that was ever on that ship in memory. I want to be part of the flyby. And the guy says, great, we're having a flyby meeting sometime in the future. Come on down for that. So I go down there, and if my memory's correct, they had a F-6 Hellcat, a S&J Texan, and a TBM Avenger flying by because the ship was commissioned 45. And I was representing four F-18s for my squadron. And there was a senior chief air traffic controller saying, give him the brief. And of course, he's saying, you got Lindbergh Field right across from North Island. He says, if he said it once, he said it 10 times. No lower than five feet, no faster than 250 knots. <laughs> uh, I'm going to qualify as a, I hope they won't take away my retirement pay when I say this. <laughs> so on the day of the flyby, I had three JOs with me, and we're orbiting just off of Mexico, off an island. The initial point, was the San Diego side of the Bay Bridge. We're supposed to hit that, fly over the top of the midway, 500 feet, 250 knots, keep the left turn coming, go down the channel between Point Loma and North Island, staying over the water. Once we're beamed the Point Loma Lighthouse, we pitch up and we head back to Lemoore. So we're coming in, we hit the initial point. On the back radio, we're in a diamond, it hooks down. I go, burners now. We light the burners. We go to the top of the ship. I've got HUD video. I think at 434 knots at about 450 feet, still in burner. (laughs) I know I can't take out a burner because it'll cause a formation to shift. Keep it in burner for a little bit. When I think it's okay, I get it out of burner. But now my turn radius has swung me, so I'm over the spine of Point Loma at about 250 feet. I flew right over the lighthouse instead of a beam it over the water. As I pitch up, I get a call. Switch box lead. This is the North Island Tower Supervisor. Give me Uh-oh. a call as soon as you land. <laughs> Here's the number. Oh, nobody ever likes that. <laughs> so I got back to Lamore and called him up. And he goes, sir, all I can say is a good thing that was an authorized flyby. Yeah. <laughs> That's but, it? But that was on a Saturday. Monday, we had a CO's meeting with the Admiral. Uh-oh. Admiral was at the decommissioning ceremony. We're all sitting there in the room. He walks in. We all stand at attention. He says at ease. He walks over, shakes my hand, says, great flyby. I loved it. Wow. He'd been the CEO of the Midway before he made Admiral. So oh, cool. Then I knew that I was going to keep my wings. <laughs> well, that was 30 years ago almost, Lefty. You try a stunt like that today, and I don't know yeah. that you'd even make it back to Lamore. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a different world than what you served in, probably for the better overall, but goodness, you are, <laughs> you're full of stories. Let me ask you this delicately. Do your takeoffs equal your landings? They do. All right. Do you remember, by the way, who was I just talking about this with? Oh, it was, um, I don't know if you know Hammer. He and I did, oh, I should have remembered his last name before I said this, but he was an F-14 guy that ended up flying the F-16N, the A-4, the F-4. He flies for us. I was saying to him that there was an instructor in Meridian. Did you go through Meridian? No, I stayed in Pensacola for two years. There was an instructor in Meridian who I think had ejected five times. 
at least that was the rumor when I went through as a student, because he had told us the stories about how the first time it was a blur and by the fifth time he could remember all the little things. So thankfully, my takeoffs and landings are also the same. And I just talking to people who have been through that, it's obviously not something you ever forget, apparently. I know an A7 guy who ejected three times, then turned in his wings. Really? And there was one time where my takeoff, I almost didn't land. I landed with, in the A7, 100 pounds on the totalizer, oh. 500 pounds on the needles. Oh, man. To a familiar field, I hope, or to somewhere? No, I'd never been there before. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was supposed to be going to Cecil Field, but I started looking at my gas. I couldn't make it, so I declared emergency. I landed at Mayport. And then 8,000 foot runway, carrier pressure tires, and an A7B, no anti-skid. And the winds, of course, were out of the east. So the duty runway was 07, I think. But mm -hmm. I didn't take the time to go past the field and turn around. So I landed with a tailwind on a short field arrestment. I shut down the gear because I was afraid I'd flame out before I got off the runway. Jeez. That's the nice thing about having a tail hook. Even Air Force aircraft have them, but the ability to take those cross deck cables at the field. And so, wow, that's sketchy. What happened? You just got painted in a corner out there? Well, we're doing case two recoveries. So there was a low overcast, and I was at the top of the stack. So when I, I was the very last guy down, and the, the ship was steaming to the east. So they were going away from land. My memory was at the beginning of recovery, they gave us our bingo fuel. I don't remember ever being updated and they, they were steaming away from land. And uh, I bolted the first time, pilot error. I came around the second time, trick or treat, and I bolted. And coming off the angle, they go, go overhead and join the tanker. This is where training and listen to the old salts paid off. Because I'd been taught when you're on a bingo, you're on a bingo. I was at bingo fuel. I said, negative, I'm bingo fuel, I'm going to the beach. And I turned towards Cecil Field, and they said, okay, we got an overhead tanker, we'll send him after you, he can tank you en route, and once you get your gas, turn around and come back. Well, I'm at like 28,000 feet, and my tanker buddy and her sister squadron says, hey, lefty, I'm at left seven o'clock, about five miles, do a left 360. <laughs> no. Exactly, I said, <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't need to have a sour package or something. I'm on a bingo. I'm staying on a bingo. So he said, okay, I'll see you back at the ship. And then I'm starting to calculate fuel. And that's when I determined that uh, I didn't have enough to make Cecil. But here's where I did something that my wife punched me when she heard the story. I set up for ejection. I took my new board off. I stowed everything. I ran my seat down. I tightened things up. I didn't know if I was going to make it. But then I said to myself, well, I'm in this situation that I bolted twice. I'm going to dead stick this airplane if I have to. Oh, geez. But I'm not going to eject because I remember I'm a f getting ready to go on my first cruise. And uh, fortunately, I made it. And when I was department head, I was telling that to some of my JOs and adding, stupid, get rid of the <laughs> plane, you survive. But my wife had come up behind me at a squadron party when I was telling this to the JOs. And when I got to the part about I was going to stay with the airplane and dead stick it, she not playfully punch me. <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't bothered to share that part with her before, had you? My uh, wife knows very few of my stories. Yeah. I think for the most part, a lot of spouses don't want to know about them because it just is harrowing to a point that they don't want to hear it. But eh, it's always fun with your buddies. They enjoy hearing that. And I sure have today, Lefty. This is a lot of fun. 
Well, I have kids. Well, you've got three sons, right? I do. I had two sons. And in their mind, dad's the most boring person in the world. I say, brush your teeth, do your homework, stuff like that. But they skateboard, they surf, and, you know, dad's boring. On one of my last cruises, I wrote down a bunch of my aviation stories with the idea I'd give them to them, and they could read that dad actually did some exciting things. But my secondary reason to doing it was my kids also thought that my career was nothing but up, up, up. They didn't know about me just calling the boat and that. I wanted them to read the stories and realize that they can make mistakes and still recover. But this is something we used to say in the A7. I titled this, all these stories, A Lesser Man Would Have Died. You heard that before? No, I like it. That's what the A7 community would say after you survive something. You say, yeah, a lesser man would have died. <laughs> but then when I wrote the stories, most of them about me doing something stupid and surviving, my subtitle is, a better pilot would have less stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, what have you done with this? Is this just a uh, PDF or Word document you have on your own, or is there a soft copy somewhere I can I've get got my a hands soft on? Copy, and uh, I never gave it to my kids because they said, "Well, Dad, we don't really want to read stuff. We'd rather talk to you in person, not about flying." I also realize a lot of it's still in pilot talk. Yeah, are they grown by now? They're. 46 and 43. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be polite. All right. Do they uh, follow your footsteps or what are they doing? No. My oldest son, he's getting ready to graduate from high school. He was confused what to do. I told him, you got what it takes to be a pilot. You can always be a pilot if you want. He goes, dad, I don't want to have to compete with you. Because by then I was a squadron XO and he actually, we're living in Japan. His friends were 18 and 19 year old sailors and Marines. And when he told them that you know, I was a squadron CEO. It was like <laughs> an invisible barrier. He started his own production company. He started off his videotaping skateboarders. Now he works on doing a producing commercials for foreign countries that want a California vibe. And my younger son wanted to be a pilot for a while, but then he wanted to play in the NBA. And then he wanted to be a rock star. And uh, <laughs> he's now in real estate in California. Well, if he'd have become a fighter pilot, he could have been a rock star in a sense. <laughs> yeah, in our minds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we at least party like it. At least I used to. I don't so much anymore. But it's funny, Lefty, since starting this podcast, I hear from people of all ages, including some younger people, even people my son's ages. And they all have this fascination with military aviation. And I think my kids don't because to them, it was just like anything else, right? I mean, they grew up around it. I would take them out to help me pre-flight. And then, of course, if mom was there, she'd hold on to me while I took off and went wherever I was going. But I'd fly in if we were different bases and say hello. And so I don't think there was that, not forbidden fruit, but I don't know what else to call it. It just was never that big a deal. So I don't think any of the three of them are going to probably end up doing it. Well, we spent 12 years in Lemoore. So from the time my son, my oldest was two until he was 15, we lived in Lemoore. You know how small that town is. Oh, yes, I do. His friends had pilot dads, so they grew up, you know, no big deal. That's right. And I realized, too, that as I talked to civilians, they talked about, oh, you must have had an exciting, wonderful life. It's so different. It's like, well, all my friends are pilots, too. <laughs> you know, so it's just commonplace. You have to really sort of step back and realize how fortunate we were to be able to do what we did. Oh, yeah. And that's why I have this show is because a lot of people just don't know. And so I enjoy sharing it and having folks like you on. And this whole series, I've started doing this happy hour thing. 
is really great because before I put all this pressure on myself, like when you reached out, I thought, okay, well, we've done a show on the F-18, right? Our shows are topical. So I, I thought, know. where can I squeeze Lefty in? And now that we've started doing this, Hemminger is his name, Hammer, I just realized it. But what happened is I was on layover with Hammer and he had flown all these amazing airplanes. And I thought, let's just put some microphones on and get a couple cold ones and just sit and talk flying stories. And it's turned into the series. And it's great because it's given everybody a chance to hear all your great stories. And for me, learn a little bit more about like that El Toro crash. I'd always heard about it, but didn't really know anything firsthand. So sounds like you've had quite the experiences, Lefty. Well, one quick story for people who want to be a pilot that never did, or maybe are feeling like they missed something, which I think they did, but I was sitting in a dentist chair, had my teeth cleaned, and she goes, oh, you're the pilot, aren't you? We were living in a small town after, when I was working for Delta, and uh, I, I was known as the pilot. <laughs> the pilot, okay. Well, I'm a pilot, yeah. She says, well, you must have a wonderful, exciting life. I said, well... I do, but what makes you think that? So, well, you know, you're flying all over the place, doing all these wonderful things. It must just be wonderful, exciting. I said, well, it is, but I've got a lot of friends that do the exact same thing I do that are miserable. She said, what? I said, yes, because they put flying first and their wife and kids second, yeah. and they're divorced and their kids don't talk to them. I said, I always put my wife and kids first and they know it. So now my flying adds to my happiness. And I said, you can have as much of the wonderful life as a dental assistant as I did as a pilot if you keep that in mind. I like to talk about marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, now we get some military aviation stories out of you and real life lessons for how to lead a better life. So good on you, Lefty. Uh, this is a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time today, man. I enjoyed it too. Good. Well, let's keep in touch and we'll consider you a resource for early F-18 employment plus the A-7. We had a show on that. And so um, I really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. It's really a, an honor to be able to do this. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.